Let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 14. Job. It's pretty much in the middle of your Bible. It's before the book of Psalms. Job 14. We're continuing a series, a short series that we're doing called Q&A, Questions and Answers. And we're looking at some of the weightiest questions that are asked in the scripture that are common to all people. And today, we're in Job 14, 14, where Job asks, if a man dies, shall he live again? Another way to to put this is, is there life after death? We all know the danger of focusing so much on the present that you neglect the future and you get burned in the process, right? We all know that, right? It's, It's why some of us get into bad debt, Right, the bad kind of debt, because we're so focused on being satisfied now or getting things now that we go into debt and then we can't keep up. We live beyond our means. We're not thinking about the future. We're not planning things out. It's one of the contributing factors to why some people get into problems with, um, with drug use. Right? They, it's like, well, I, I want to feel good now. I want to escape. And it can lead to all kinds of problems. And parents know what this is like, right? You can be so focused on the now, you know, I've got to commit myself to work. I've got to work a bunch of hours because, you know, I, I want to I provide for my family or whatever decisions we're making in the now, we sometimes aren't taking into consideration that we are ultimately going to be producing mature children and a relationship with them that will be the byproduct of the present. And so when you neglect the end, you oftentimes wind up and you think like, wow, I wasted a a bunch of time on the wrong thing, and I, if I could go back, I would. We all know what it's like, right, to be so focused on the present that we neglect the future. And today, I want us to look way, way into the future. I want us to look at death and beyond. Is there life after death? I'll tell you what the principle is here that I want us to grasp. It's a the principle is actually kind of a, kind of a paradox, but just, just hold on to it as we work our way through the message today. The principle is this, what follows your death should actually change your life. Like what, what happens after you die, your understanding of that, the reality of that is supposed to have a direct and immediate impact on how you live today. What follows your death should change your life. If you like taking notes, if you're one of those people, I'll give you the outline, right? So we're going to deal with the question, right? The question, is there life after death? Um, then we're going to look at the answer, okay? We'll take some, spend some time on the answer, and then we'll look at the response, what we should do in response to that truth. So first, the question, is there life after death? Uh, you may think, if you think like me, like, well, this is the question that nobody is asking today, Right? Because this used to be a question that was common in America. Right? Lots of people were asking this question, particularly older generations, particularly generations that had to endure war, right? when people's lives were being lost in mass numbers, when there, was, when there were frightening realities that were taking away life. But today, by and large, this is not something that is commonly asked, at least not here in North America, because, well, for a lot of reasons. We largely know peace. In our country, uh, we live longer. Uh, we have medicine that has helped us to overcome disease. We're not dealing with death at the same level that many other cultures are. 
And even when there is death, we, we, we tend to distance ourselves from it. Right? We keep our distance. Uh, we keep that sort of compartmentalized. That's a thing that we're going to deal with over there, not so much in the everyday. And when we do have to interact with death up close, we sanitize it. Right? We keep it real clean. And th this isn't necessarily bad, but it sort of removes the weightiness uh, or the upfront ugliness of death to some degree. And just even the, the way that we're able to preserve bodies and present them open caskets so that they look relatively like themselves and they look like perhaps they're, they're sleeping. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying there's a way, these are all ways in which we somehow are able to sanitize the experience of death so that its ugliness and its sting is somewhat removed. And few kids, particularly kids in the middle class, upper middle class, suburban context, few kids are even interacting with death by and large because who's dying? Right? There are some that are going to have this, but it's not like it used to be. I mean, the grandparents of children still have decades left before they're going to pass. So these kids are growing up, and they're not really experiencing death, except for Hammy the hamster, right, perhaps, or, or like, you know, Doofus the dog or whatever. And though, though, listen, that's meaningful, too. That, I'm not suggesting that that's not without merit, but in terms of growing and understanding life and death, but we're just, there is, a, there is an increased distance, particularly for upper-middle-class kids in the suburbs because we have so much peace, right? We're not dealing with wars or gang violence. Things are calm. Death is far off for most of us in a lot of ways. Death is far off. Now, for some of you, it's not. Some of you know it, and it's painful reality. But for those where it is pushed off and it is distant, we just don't ask the question. Because the question, is there life after death, is largely irrelevant. So who is asking this question? Well, we'll start with Job. Job is asking this question. And if you don't know the story of Job, I'll tell it to you briefly. Job was righteous, right? I mean, he was a good man, a righteous man. He was a believer in the Lord. He was obedient to the Lord, relatively Still a sinner like us. Um, loved the Lord, and the Lord had, had caused him to prosper. I mean, Job had it all. Job had a wife. Job had kids. Uh, Job had health. Uh, he had wealth. He had affluence. He had everything you could want in this life. And then when you read Job, the Lord is bragging. He's got the heavenly host around, and the devil's there, and he's like, do you see my boy? Do you see Job? That guy's got it going on. He loves me. See what he is? See, this is pretty good. And so the devil says, yeah, he's only, he only loves you because you take care of him. Like you really, you've really made it easy for him. Wife, kids, health, wealth. Of course he's going to give you all kinds of praise. Let me take that stuff away from him and he will curse you. And God grants the devil permission. Take that in. God gives the devil permission to afflict a righteous man that loves the Lord. Why? Does the Lord need to prove something to the devil? No. The devil's a punk idiot. He just says, go away, devil. So why is he doing it? To strengthen Job's faith? Sure. Sure. That's a part of it. To test and to prove Job's faith? Yes, that's, that's definitely a part of it. 
Certainly it, it, it is so that Job will value eternity more than he does the temporal. That's a part of it. In the end, what Job learns is the Lord is the one who gives and the Lord is the one who takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, Job gets it in the end. You're doing this for your own glory, even though Job doesn't really know what God is doing. Well, the devil does uh, take away uh, Job's kids. <laughs> his kids are killed. He loses his health. He loses his wealth. He loses everything. Oh, except his wife. But she turns into a pill who tells him to curse God and die. So he has nothing, and the stuff that he does have is horrible. He is miserable. So in this place where he is afflicted and hurting, he's seeing death everywhere. In chapter 14, he begins to wrestle with the issues of life and death. So when I ask, who really asks this question about is there life after death? Job does. Job says in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Job 14, he says, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. For there's hope for a tree. If it be cut down, it will sprout again. Its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man? A man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last. And where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? That's what he's asking. He says, what I see is people dying. They get put in the dirt and they don't come back. I can see the cycle of life, the circle of life happening all around me, but not when it comes to people made in your image. What's the point? Job's asking, is there life after death? Job is the one who's asking. So now, who are the people who actually ask? Who are the people that care about this issue, is there life after death? I'll tell you who cares. People who are close to death, they care. They ask. People who are close to suffering, they ask. And people who are close to evil and sin, they ask. Now, in one sense, we are all close to these things, but we oftentimes pretend that we aren't or numb ourselves so that we can act as if they aren't close. But people who feel the presence of things like death and suffering and evil, they begin to ask. Those who are close to death, when you are facing your own mortality, when your death is presumably near, when you recognize that like your heart might stop beating, that your life is coming to an end, and for whatever providential cause you're, you're, you're facing. When you begin to ask that question, is my life coming to an end, you follow it with, is there something else after? It's natural. 
When you're separated from death, you don't really care that much. When you're losing people that you love, when you're seeing people pass away and enter their sleep, we begin to, to wonder, like, well, okay, is there something more? Where are they now? And we've gone through a season, haven't we, at the church, where we've lost a number of our loved ones. You've lost people that are more precious to you than you can express. So people who are close to death, they ask this question, and that's good. That's good. People who are close to suffering ask this question, right? And it could be the suffering that comes from disease, violence, war. It could be mental illness. People who are suffering affliction, whether they bring it on themselves or not, people that are suffering look for relief, right? They, they look for some kind of peace. They look for some kind of alleviation from their distress. And frequently we wind up saying, like, listen, I, I can see that there will be no relief as long as I live. There is no hope of, of being lifted above this particular affliction or pain or suffering while I am living on this earth. Is there something beyond? Or is this all there is? People that suffer greatly look for some kind of redemption or relief. And those who are close to sin and evil, they, uh, they look beyond the grave. If you experience oppression and injustice and you see the wicked getting away with their evil, not being held to account, you start to wonder, well, is there, is there justice? If God is just and there is no justice in this life, is there justice in the next we long for justice. We long to see it come to reality, not just so that the wicked pay, right? So we want justice to happen there, but also that the oppressed might be liberated. Does it happen? If it doesn't happen in this life, and listen, you know it doesn't happen very much in this life. Does it ever happen? Is there something after death? And it doesn't even have to be outside sin. You could just be dealing with your own sin, the evil in your own heart, your own temptation, your own weakness, and you will long for redemption, for salvation, for rescue, because it gets tiring, exhausting, facing our own failures day after day. Paul gets so fed up with this in Romans chapter 7, he, he, it sounds like he's screaming. It sounds like he's, he sounds like he's losing his mind a little bit. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do those things. I'm a mess. He says, I'm sold into some kind of bondage here. I can't extricate myself from these sins that cling to me. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Those who are close to sin and evil long for redemption, long for justice. I know that this is... You know, you think like this is a question people aren't asking. And that's true to a large degree. Most people are not walking around today asking this question, at least in, I think, the North American context, unless you are close to death and suffering and evil. But just because they aren't asking the question doesn't mean that the question isn't relevant. In fact, this question is more relevant than most of the questions people are asking of themselves on a daily basis. Because what happens after our death is supposed to frame our present lives. So is there life after death? The short answer 
is yep. Yes, there is life after death. And as Christians, right, we believe this. We, we believe that people, human beings, people created in God's image have souls, right? And, and, and our souls are immortal. They live on. Even when, the, even when we die and our heart stops beating and we're buried in the ground, we are still conscious. We're still alive. And there will come a day when there is a resurrection, when body and soul are reunited. We believe in the, in the immortality of the soul. And we also believe that with death, as we live on, comes a kind of reckoning. There will be a reckoning. Everybody will ultimately stand before the Lord. So in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, we read that it is appointed unto man to die once, and after that, face judgment. We will all say, what, is there life after death? Yes, we continue to live on and we will stand before God. There will be a reckoning. Now, we can, um, we, we can give a fuller picture here and talk about the realities of heaven and hell. Right? We believe it. Like, listen, we're old school Protestant Baptists. We believe in heaven and hell. Uh, this shouldn't be strange to you. But we should also, we, should, we shouldn't pretend that we have all the answers when it comes to heaven and hell. There's a whole lot we do not know, right? Some people want to get super literal with all the promises about heaven and hell, and uh, those, I don't think those ultimately work out, right? Is, is hell hot with real fire? Yeah, then how is it dark? It's supposed to be all dark, outer darkness. You have fire, you're going to have light, so what, what is it? And it's like people get wrapped up in these details, these images, and they miss the point that when we see these depictions of paradise, right, when you're... When you're with Abraham and you're with God's people or, or hell there is, or in judgment, uh, we, we get sidetracked by these images that are supposed to create the, the picture of either devastation or absolute deliverance, right? Isolation from God or perfect fellowship with God and with his people. So when you look at the Old Testament, you've got, you've, there, there are teases, Teases of these doctrines of heaven and hell. Uh, for example, in the Old Testament, Psalm 73, verse 24. It's one of my favorite psalms. Verse 24 says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. So clearly, the psalmist here has an understanding that after death, for me, a child of God, there is glory. I will be received into glory. I will be with the God. I will be with God. I'll be in his presence. There is full, complete redemption for me. He has this belief. And so it wasn't, it wasn't as if they didn't have a concept of heaven or hell in some way. Um, in Isaiah 66, uh, 24, we, we, we have a depiction of what some people think is, is hell. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, we have a depiction of what I believe is the resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, starting in verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So this is where a lot of scholars go, okay, so here is where a concept of resurrection was beginning to be clarified in the Old Testament. And so by the time you get to the intertestamental period, it was very common. There was a, was a pretty well-developed doctrine of the resurrection of the body that would come. And when you get to the New Testament, you see hell described in Matthew 25, 41 as a place of eternal fire reserved for the demons. Or you can look at Mark chapter 9, 
verse 48, where hell is described as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Or Luke 16, 19 through 31. You guys know what that is? It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Unless it's not a parable. Some scholars would say it's not a parable. Guy's named. Jesus doesn't usually name people in his parables, so it's probably a true story. I don't really care. Either way, it's making the same point, right? And if you don't know the parable, briefly, the parable is there was a rich man who was like Job in every way, except he wasn't a lover of God. He didn't have faith, but he had all the blessings. He had all the goods. He had all the worldly treasures, but he didn't have faith. But outside of his gate was a man who had faith, but that was all he had because he didn't have any earthly goods. He was poor. He was blind. He was miserable. That's Lazarus. Well, both men die, and the rich man winds up in outer darkness under judgment, and Lazarus winds up as a man of faith, one who has been redeemed in, in a place called paradise, Abraham's bosom. He's chill. He's kicking it with Abraham, right? The stories that he grew up hearing about Abraham, the patriarch, he's hanging with it. He's with the Lord. Things are good. And it says what? That the rich man looks across and can see paradise, and he has no part in it, and he asks for relief. He asks for some water, and he doesn't get any. And he says, well, let me just go back. Let me appear Send somebody back from the dead so I can warn my brothers, and then they will repent of their sins and not wind up where I am. And the response was, if they don't listen to Moses, if they aren't willing to listen to Scripture, they're not going to be persuaded by a miracle either. So we believe in heaven and hell. There is life after death for everybody, and you will stand before God. The question is, is how do you wind up in paradise versus the place of, of punishment? And it's, it's, I think it's, it's rather simple for us. We, we would say that we will all stand before God and we will either be judged for our lack of righteousness or we will be accepted on account of Christ's righteousness. That's it. You will be judged by the Lord and righteousness is going to be the issue. And if you think that you're going to stand there and make your appeal to God because of your righteousness, you are deceived. I know, I know a lot of people want to like, well, I'm just going to appeal to, well, I've done more good than bad. If you think you've done more good in your life than bad, you do not understand the nature of sin. You do not understand yourself very well, or at least you're not being honest. I know some people that are really good, like really good. My dad was one of those guys all of his life, just did that. Well, okay. He beat, a few, beat a few people up. Maybe he went overboard on a couple of occasions. But by and large, he did more good than bad, right, when you look at his life, because he was a good man, honest man. Unless you start getting down into the details, right? Because why do we do the good things that we do? Our motives are mixed. We oftentimes, if not all of the time, do good things, yes, out of a sense of, well, I want to help somebody, but also because it makes us feel good or it makes us look good. The reality is, is our best efforts, our best attempts to do what is good is still marked and marred by sin and corruption. You're going to appeal to that. You're basically then appealing to sin. You're going to judge me, Lord, about, according to my righteousness, and your righteousness amounts to nothing, as Isaiah says, but filthy rags. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 3 by quoting a number of psalms. He says, there is no one who is righteous 
Not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He is saying this after he has made the whole argument in the first three chapters that, yeah, okay, those unbelieving pagans who reject the God of Israel, they're judged. The wrath of God is upon them. But so are those morally upright, goody-two-shoes people that always seem to do the right thing. They're judged because they're hypocritical and sin clings to all of their good deeds as well. And Israel, you're still condemned if you're still in your sins. Just because you're a part of Israel doesn't mean that you're not a sinner. Doesn't mean that you're not guilty. This applies to everyone. This is why he can say in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you will be judged for your lack of righteousness because you don't have any. And it's not just that you lack what you need, you have what you don't need, an abundance of sin and guilt. So you lack righteousness, you've amassed guilt, and so judgment comes. If you are going to stand before God and all you have to show is your own attempts at righteousness, judgment is the answer. So you will either be judged for your lack of righteousness or you will be accepted on account of Christ's righteousness. I just want to read one passage to you. Knowing that we must all give an account to God who made us, made us for his glory, made us to be good neighbors, made us good, and we have corrupted it and made it bad in so many ways. Knowing that we lack the righteousness that we need to be standing before God accepted, God gives us a righteousness that we can't amass, that we can't create, what theologians call an alien righteousness. He gives us a righteousness from outside of ourselves He credits it to our account. It is the righteousness of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss. And the everything he's talking about are all of his worldly credentials, the things that he had achieved in life that gave him personal uh, personal sense of worth and status, but also social credibility, right? Everything that made him look good. He says, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. By the way, he's saying, in choosing to follow Jesus, I have lost all the social standing and credibility that I had. Everything that made me look good to everybody else is now out the window because I'm following Jesus. And he says, and by the way, I count it all as rubbish, that is dung. I was like, I count it all as as disgusting and worthless. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So he's looking forward. But he's looking past his own death, right? Because he would die before Christ would return and the resurrection would happen. So he's looking past his life. 
And what does he say? He says, I know that I can look forward to the resurrection. I know that I can look forward to life after death because I'm not trusting in a righteousness that comes from my own obedience. I'm trusting in a righteousness that Christ has amassed and now gives to all who believe. That's the doctrine of justification, that we are forgiven of our sins and given the righteousness of Christ. We were accepted for Christ's righteousness. This is the answer. Is there life after death? Yes. We will all stand before God and give an account, and this will lead into eternity, a place of judgment or a place of redemption. And it all depends on whether or not we're standing upon our own sins and false righteousness or we are standing with Christ and his righteousness. So what's the response? What are we supposed to do? As we ask this question, is there life after death? And we see that there is. There is a heaven and a hell. What are we supposed to do with this? I'll give you three things. One, ponder. It's a really good word we don't use enough. You know why we don't use the word ponder enough? Because we don't ponder enough. That's why. No pondering. I love the word ponder. Think deeply about it. Ponder it. Consider it intentionally, in a sustained manner. Meditate on this truth. Ponder life after death. Ponder heaven and hell. Ponder the resurrection. Because by looking ahead, you are, you are instructed on how to live today. Right? It is like what follows your death is supposed to change your life. So we look ahead, and what it's supposed to do is guard and guide and frame our existence today. Let me give you one passage of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, one of my favorite passages. Here it says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, so get ready, and being sober-minded, get serious, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So look ahead, outside of your current existence, to when Jesus returns, which is when most Christians have already passed, right? So for most of them, maybe not us, maybe, we look beyond our life, past death, to the return of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God." We look ahead, we look past our life, past death, to the day of judgment when we are fully welcomed. I mean, to be absent from the body now as a Christian is to be in the presence of the Lord. But there is a day when there is a reckoning. We will stand with Christ and enter into paradise. Yes, it frames our life today. We live soberly and seriously in light of it. Let me give you an example. Romans chapter 8, 18 Here's a practical example. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul says, listen, 
Things are hard right now. Things are dark. Things are bleak. And as bad as they can be, as, the, as, as, as deep as the affliction can go, as wicked as rulers might be, as dangerous as the devil is, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he says, listen, I look ahead. I don't ignore what I'm going through now, but I look ahead and see what we have as the big answer, and I can now endure this. Now, let me just say this. When people are going through really difficult times, the temptation for us as Christians is to go, Romans 8, 18, hey, bro, not worthy to compare. These sufferings, momentary affliction, don't worry about it. Just look ahead, man. It's it's all going to be good. It's all glory. Uh, That's probably not going to help. Some of us, it'll help. Uh, But the reason is not because it's not true. It's not likely to help because that doctrine, that truth, is one that has to be embraced by the individual suffering, not thrown at them. Paul says it. I am confident of this. He had to get there. And as Christians, we can get there. And we get there by, by seeing the truth, by, by, by meditating, by pondering, right? We look ahead and we go, okay, there is injustice, there is disease, there is death, but there is vindication and life and restoration ahead. So I can endure what I have now. I can live differently now and not despair and not be bitter and angry because I know what God's doing and where he's taking us. This is basically a call to be heavenly minded. To ponder this is to be heavenly minded. And you know that stupid saying, oh, don't be so heavenly minded that you're not any earthly good. I have yet to meet somebody who's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. To be heavenly minded is to be an earthly good, right? It it doesn't mean that you ignore your circumstances. If you're truly heavenly minded, then you know where we're going. You know where everybody is going, right? In theory, right? One of two places. You know what God's purpose is, and that fits us for life today. We oftentimes talk about being fit for heaven, right? Jesus makes us fit for heaven. He takes away our sin and our guilt. Now we're fitted for heaven. But once you have heaven, heaven fits you for life here, because now I understand, I, I get it, I, I, get, I get the point, I get the purpose. So we should ponder. Number two, we should prepare, right? Prepare for heaven. How do you prepare for heaven? You prepare for heaven, um, not by buying a ticket for it, right, and earning your way. You prepare for heaven by embracing God and his ways today, right? Um, look, uh, the, the simplest way to say it is you don't, Don't just live for today. Live for eternity. You have to live for today. You got responsibilities. But don't just live for today. Live for eternity. Or to state it very positively, if you you must live for the glory of God, not for the gains of the world. Right, you live for the, and that doesn't mean you don't gain. You will gain. Like you, we're going to have successes in this life. That's fine. But what is your, what is your purpose? What is your goal? What is your energy derived at, derived from? Like we live for the glory of God, not the gains of the world. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter six, verse nineteen, when he says, "Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart is, or for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Right. And so the point is, like, listen, don't live to amass wealth in this world. Not that it's wrong to amass wealth. I'm obviously talking to a bunch of rich people because I keep qualifying that. It's okay to have money. 
The point is, you don't live for that. Your purpose is not in that. Your purpose is for the glory of God. Why? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Right? So if you're living for the glory of God, it's evident where your heart is. So the glory of God and our future fixes, in a sense, it writes our heart. Now, you might be saying, like, well, my heart is a mess. I don't actually, I know I'm supposed to, but I'm not living for the glory of God. I am very much focused on, on worldly living, right? Just, a, just amassing a peaceful life for here. So I guess I can't do that. I can't live for God's glory until my heart changes. Your heart is uh, malleable, right? Your heart can change. It can harden. It can soften. And it's a mistake to think like, oh, well, I, 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 since I can't, since my heart isn't right, I won't be able to live for God's glory. Um, the reality is begin to work, to live, to strive for the glory of God, and your heart changes. Your heart changes. Right? You expose yourself to the word. You offer yourself up in prayer. But I don't really mean it yet. Okay, well, shocking, right? We're all sinners. Offer these things up because God uses things like prayer. He uses things like the word. He uses our practice of righteousness to actually accomplish things in us. So give yourself to them and you will find your heart changing. So prepare by living for the glory of God now. And lastly, and I'll just say this briefly, just be, you're going to have to preach, right? You're going to have to preach. So you, you, you ponder, you prepare, and you preach, meaning you, you, you know that there is life after death. Most people are living life without this awareness, so it is upon us to tell others about this reality, that we will give an account, that we will stand before God, but that he's not delighting to catch us. He delights in justifying us, in rescuing us, in saving us, and he offers this to everyone. So, what follows your death should change your life. So take care of your life. That's, that's the exhortation, right? Take care of your life. This one and the one that follows, right? This earthly life and the life that we enter into after death. We take care of them both, right? We take care of it all. And we do this, really, we do this by first embracing the giver of our life, it changes everything when you begin to, to recognize God gave me this life. It's not, this is not just something for me to work on. Like, God gave it to me. It's for his glory. It is for my good. It's for the good of others. And there is a way to approach this life that, is, that doesn't make me the center. So look to the giver of your life and believe in the redeemer of your life. That's the encouragement here, right? We have the opportunity to look to Jesus who lived the perfect life that none of us have. We've been given this life and we have all squandered it. You've squandered it and I've squandered it. But Jesus lived the life that we failed to live so that the righteousness of his life could be given to us who lack it. Those who believe in Christ are forgiven of their sins and given that gift of righteousness so that we are fit for heaven and now heaven fits us for life here. Don't ignore this because to ignore this, to ignore this leaves you full in this life but empty for eternity. Jesus says in, I think it's Matthew 16, 26, 
What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Look at the life God has given you. Marvel and be grateful and allow him to guide you, not just to how to live a better life, but how to find a life that is redeemed and made whole through Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the chance to worship in spirit and in truth today. We pray that you would continue to teach us, that you would revive us wherever necessary, that you would bless us with a common purpose, your glory, and a shared love. We pray, Lord, that many would come to believe in Christ, being rescued from their sins and given eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.